0: Are you called to ministry? Throughout the month of March, Midwestern Seminary is giving away free resources and content to equip you to pursue your calling for the church. Your calling is too important to pursue unequipped. So we want to gift you with helpful books and articles, scholarships to seminary commentary sets, Logos Bible software, and more. Enter to win these giveaways at mbts.edu slash called. Everyone who enters can receive free ebooks during the entire month of March as well. This is an incredible giveaway. You can win scholarships, you can win helpful books, you can win commentary sets, and you can win a Logos Bible software package. That's incredible. And there are so much more that they're giving away over at mbts.edu slash called. Go check out this giveaway. Everyone who enters can receive free ebooks during the month of March. So there is really no reason to not enter this giveaway right now. mbts.edu slash called. You're listening to Knowing Faith, a podcast of training the church. This is Kyle Worley and I'm joined by my co-host Jen Wilkin and JT English. What's up guys? Hey, this is a Knowing Faith first us. Mm -hmm. This we are recording on a day where there was snow on the ground for all of us this morning. All
1: three of us. All three of us.
0: That has never happened. This is a first for
1: us. Mm
2: -hmm. Welcome to the club guys.
1: Did you go outside? I didn't go outside.
0: (laughs) I went outside, yeah. Me and my daughter made a, a tabletop snowman. We didn't have enough snow to make like a real snowman, so we just made one on the backyard table. JT, you're so snow is so normal for you. It's just passe. Like, we were excited. My daughter yeah. woke up, and she's like, there's no snow. There's <laughs> still
2: winter wonderland here every single day, you know?
0: Mm. Is that what is that what Thomas says every morning? We basically, there's I
2: mean, all of Colorado feels like Aspen. It's just kind of, you know. <laughs> wow. I will say this, though. I mean, Colorado ones are struggling a little bit right now. It's cold. It, we're, we're dealing with the snow. It was negative 11 when we started church this past week. I mean, it's... Macy was like, "Should we go outside and go sledding?" I was like, "Let me, let me, we can do that when it's thirty-two degrees." But I want you to think about the difference between like seventy-four or sixty-four. Like, think about a thirty, forty-degree difference. That's what we're talking yeah. about here. From it's below that in freezing terms. Yeah. And she's like, "That's a good point." It's like forty degree forty degrees below freezing.
0: Like that's too cold.
1: Let's just keep our extremities instead of going sledding. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. yeah. I like J- my fingers, yeah. JT, do you want some cheese with all that wine? <laughs> <laughs> hey, hey, can you hear that? <laughs> what is it? Tell me. what
2: it is. It's the smallest violin playing your swan song. Right <laughs> there, there we go. Uh, okay. There we go. We are just <laughs> and
0: we're back only in the hits grade. today on Knowing Faith podcast. Yeah. Very, very well, serious yeah. today. Yep, yep. So, uh, okay, on this Snow Day episode of Knowing Faith, uh, we are taking a break from our journey through Exodus uh, to start to spotlight some questions and discussions and major works in church history. And we we're, we titled this episode, episode Church History, A Reading Guide. Uh, in the past, we, we've we certainly involved uh, conversations focused on church history or historical documents. We did a whole, really a whole season basically on the Apostles' Creed pretty early on in Knowing Faith's uh, time. So if you, if you missed that and you're really interested in church history, you should go back and listen to that series that we did on the Apostles' Creed. It was really fun. But this season, as we continued through Exodus, we wanted to just spotlight some major works in church history, uh, works that have been either particularly impactful for the witness of the church or probably closer to the works that have been most impactful for us personally. And so we wanted to just take some time and focus on this, but I I think maybe our goal for this episode today is just to give you a broad sense of what the major voices are in the history of the church. Mm -hmm. Now this is always selective. Okay. And I got to tell you, there's been a dissertation written about, people that I've never met before. I mean, it, there, if you go talk to a patristic scholar, somebody who is a scholar of the church fathers, the early church, the first kind of generation of really professional or academic theology that was happening in the life of the early church, they're going to mention names that were, they would say, are man, they had an incredible influence over the witness of the church that we won't mention here today. And that's not to denigrate these names. It's not to say that they're insignificant. It's just to say they're is a bit of a kind of a, a canon. There's a catalog. There is a group that typically is set apart of just kind of commonly recognized major influences. So I don't want you to hear us today and be like, well, you left off this person. We're going to leave off a lot of people. We're not going to mention every pastor, theologian, poet, philosopher in the history of the church who took time to write something significant. We're just going to mention some of the ones we think, hey, if these are the only ones you know about, this would be a good list to have kind of working in. In the background for you. But before we do that, JT, you and I um, have both spent a lot of time reading across church history. It was a part of some of the programs that we did. It's been a part of some of the writing and study we've done. What's the value? If somebody is saying, hey, I am hook, line, and sinker on biblical literacy. I want to spend my time in God's Word— I don't really know the value of taking the precious little time I have for reading and focusing on reading or studying anything but the Bible or primary text focused on, you know, explaining the Bible to me. What's the value of somebody said about reading historical documents or reading the voices of historical figures through the history of the church?
2: Sure. Yeah. And that was a question I had going into seminary. I had a my first class or one of my first classes in my first semester was Church History 101. And I was like, well, for what? Like, I'd rather be at the you know, the preaching seminar or the, you know, contemporary ministry. I mean, I really had my <clears throat> eyes opened to the importance of church history. We always say that theology is best done in community. Uh, it's one of the things that we we value in our own churches. And that means doing theology with our contemporaries. It means learning from each other. It means uh, benefiting from each other's study and research and work. But doing theology in community also means doing uh, theology with the community of the past. And that isn't just because we think it's a good idea, but because it's a Spirit-filled past. Uh, We didn't just move from Pentecost to today. The Spirit has been uh, working and uh, guiding the Church to truth for the last 2,000 years. Now, big caveat— that doesn't mean everything we read in church history is inspired or inerrant or anything like that or authoritative, but it is spirit driven. The spirit is indwelling the church and. We can learn from a lot of the church's follies uh, when we read church history. We can also learn from a lot of the church's wisdom when we read yeah. church history. Uh, and one of my uh, favorite contemporary authors talks about finding ancient friends uh, mm. in church history, and that's what I feel like I've found in several theologians, where they've 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 walked through similar situations to what the church is walking through today. We're we we always can act like we're living through this brand new moment, and what are we supposed to do? But the church has had ups and downs and twists and turns for the last 2,000 years, and when we benefit from the men and women who've gone before us, who thought uh, intelligently and biblically and prayerfully about how to deal with contemporary issues, like, for example, right now we're dealing with some significant issues around what does it mean to be an image bearer, and what is artificial intelligence, and what does it mean to be a man or a woman, and what is a body? Man, you know who we could learn a lot from? The theologians who were writing against the Gnostics, who didn't have a whole understanding of what it meant to... Be a person and the body having something to do with that. So I think we can learn a lot from the men and women who've gone before us because the spirit has always been with the church. That's right. I'd
1: be curious. I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on how this relates to the current pattern of deconstruction that we're seeing. How do you see as mm. lear, knowing, understanding church history, having some sense of it as as a potential remedy for some of the deconstruction that we see?
2: Yeah, we've talked about this a little bit before, and Kyle, I want you to answer, because I think you probably have a better answer than I do, but my my first kind of off the hip would be, a lot of what's being deconstructed isn't historic orthodoxy, it's really kind of a contemporary version of a kind of evangelicalism. That doesn't mean we shouldn't be thankful for that kind of evangelicalism, but... Christianity has stood the test for 2,000 years. And the blog that you read today that's leading you to deconstructionism is probably not interacting with the 2,000 years of church history. And so it can really help with a rootedness in the Christian mm-hmm. faith that isn't kind of a shallow deconstruction, but is actually having to deal with and grapple one of the largest theological and philosophical traditions on planet Earth. Mm.
0: That's exactly right. I mean, what I'll tell people is, hey, listen, the deconstruction journey that you're on, um, it should be it should be aware that uh, if it takes you 20 minutes to deconstruct, and it took the church 2,000 years to get to contemporary theological form, formations, maybe it would be good to slow that down a little bit. You know what I'm saying? Like if mm-hmm. if you got there by way of man, I read some tweets and I watched some TikToks and now I feel like it's time for me to, you know, leave behind the history of the church. I'd go, "Man, I really think that's fairly dismissive over a global historic confessional tradition, creedal tradition." Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that's really I think that should be a caution sign to people on the deconstruction journey that like if it feels really fast and frenzied, um, I don't know that you're really paying respect to the kind of labor that it took for men and women across a global community to present Uh, Christian Orthodoxy in a way that's both compelling and coherent. So yeah, I do think that um, what JT said, a lot of current deconstruction is about leaving evangelical models of Christianity behind. And listen, I've said it here before, I'm not really caught up in whether we save or salvage evangelicalism as a name, a brand, an identity. Like I'm not losing sleep on that. But A lot of the conflation that happens in contemporary deconstruction, or that I see, is I'm stepping away from evangelicalism, so I'm stepping away from Christianity. I mean, I guess if if that's the decision you're making, I think that you're the one who's drawing narrow lines, not the history of the church. You know, Mm -hmm. Um, Jen, I'd be curious. I don't want to rush past this first one. You are. I mean, I think we can, if we put a sash on you, it would probably say Miss Biblical Literacy. You know what I'm saying? Like Ms. if there was a yeah. Miss Biblical Literacy pageant, we think I think you'd be the clear front runner. Um, and so if one of the questions they asked you in that pageant was, hey, for Bible literacy, what's the value of reading church history? What would you say? I mean, like you are the read the Bible person.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When I
0: talk with you, I feel like, Gosh, I need to read the Bible more than I've been reading the Bible. You have that impact on me, on your friends, and on everybody who reads your work. So I feel like somebody might go like, well, I bet Jen isn't super interested. But what have you found to be the value of the historical witness that you've engaged with?
1: Well, I think, you know, there's a saying, I think it's attributed to Alistair Begg, main things are plain things, plain things are main things. And one of the ways that we are helped when we start reading scripture and we think, gosh, none of this feels extra plain to me right now is by going back to that historical witness of what the plain things are, that agreement on, on the plain things and the main things, which we would call, you know, orthodoxy. It's not right. just orthodoxy. There are other things in scripture that everybody's been like, yeah, that's, that seems pretty cut and dried, um, and so I think that you know we have a tendency to be just a, um the prisoners of our own experience and our own yeah, day and right. age. And what the witness of church history can do is help us to get out of our own um, 40 to 80 years and, right. and get a sense of what everyone has said. And, I, you know, this actually goes back to the deconstruction question, too. It, it's the idea that I am going to find something new in the scriptures or that I'm going to ask a question that's never been asked or that, that the answers that I'm hearing have have um, have never been given before. Uh, And I think also, you know, the idea that a lot of the answers that are being given to the questions that have been asked over and over again. Uh, We don't know whether those answers are going to hold up, Um, whether they'll hold up and survive the test of time, but we can go all the way back to these early church fathers and read some of the answers that they gave to these questions. And we can actually gauge whether they have stood the test of time. And so I think when you're reading the scriptures, You know, we talk about don't read alone, and um, as JT's pointed out, these are ancient friends with whom we can read the scriptures and our growing understanding of them. They're conversation partners in many ways, and they're conversation partners who, if their words didn't hold weight, we wouldn't know their names. That's right. Uh, But because they have, we we do still know their names.
0: That's right. JT, in theological circles, we'll have to talk about the relationship between the testimony of Scripture and the testimony of the church's historic witness or tradition. So yeah. just p- let's put all of our cards out on the table in terms of what is the relationship between the witness of Scripture or the testimony of Scripture and the testimony of the church?
2: Yeah, historically, there's they've been categorized in three different ways in terms of Scripture and tradition having a relationship with each other. Let me just highlight the three, and I'll tell you where I land. So one that you're familiar with is kind of more of the, the Catholic position, uh, historically Catholic, that would say we have two authorities. Mm-hmm. And it's the authority of Scripture. Uh, the Bible is inspired and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. And so is history. And these are dueling authorities, not dueling in the sense of contrasting, but also in other sense, Catholics would say tradition came first. It was it, it, uh, the church uh, creates the Bible, not the Bible creating the church. This was a huge conversation in the Reformation is... Is the church uh, the the mother of the word, or is the word the mother of the church? Protestants land on saying that we are birthed from the church uh, from the from the word. Uh, the church is something that God creates by speaking the church into existence through the proclamation of the word. Catholics would have a slightly different view on that. So, I'm going to say uh, I forget the theologian who says it, There's like these three relationships. One is called relationship zero. One is relationship one, and one is relationship two. This relationship two sees the Bible and tradition as both having authority. Let me go to the other side of the spectrum. It's relationship zero, uh, which simply says uh, we we have the Bible as our only authority, and tradition has no impact on us at all. The Reformers actually called these this group of people the radical Reformers. Uh, they didn't want to benefit from the testimony of the church or tradition in any way. It was the Bible alone. In some sense, uh, you know, the Reformers say sola scripture, that the Bible alone is authoritative. This group of people was saying solo scripture, that we only use the Bible for theological formation. And the Reformers and the Protestant tradition came up with what we now call this relationship one, where we do only have one authority, and it's the Bible. However, tradition holds kind of a ministerial authority for scripture. And so the way that it's been talked about frequently is the Bible has magisterial authority. It is where we, it's where we ground all of our doctrine. It's where we formulate all of our theological positions, but we use tradition as a sub authority to help us make sure that we're reading the Bible correctly, almost like the lenses that we would put on to read scripture. So you better have a reason To uh, The Bible must be very clear about something for you to go outside of Scripture because the the Spirit has been leading and guiding the Church over the last 2,000 years, so we want to benefit from that. So relationship zero is solo Scripture. Relationship two is seeing the Bible and tradition as equal authorities. And relationship one is the historically Protestant position, which says— Sola Scriptura, the Bible alone is authoritative and inspired, however, uh, tradition helps us with a ministerial authority of interpreting the Bible correctly.
0: That's that's, that, really helpful. that's really helpful. I, I've been helped mm-hmm. by understanding that when people think, you know what, I'm just not going to take into account um, tradition at all. I'm just going to read the Bible plainly, you know, take off any preconditions or any biases or any sort of stipulations and read it purely, that they don't understand they're actually still bringing a lot to the text. They're still bringing, like Yaroslav Pelikan, who was like a historian of the church and wrote on the development of doctrine across the history of the church. He has this quote when people tell me, like, yeah, I'm not really interested in reading church history. I'm not really interested in tradition. He always says, the only alternative to tradition is bad tradition, (laughs) which I think is like, (laughs) he's like basically saying, like, you can't outflank this. Like, you're going to be bringing. A pattern of tradition, a pattern of interpretation mm-hmm. to bear on the text as you read it. The only alternative to doing it badly is to do it well. So it's mm-hmm. like, you know it's like we say sometimes about being a theologian. You are a theologian. The question is whether you're going to be bad at it or good at it. Like you are going to be uh, inheriting and communicating the uh, the tradition, the witness of the church, the testament of the church. The only question is, are you going to do it self-consciously? with a kind of an awareness of where it's founded and rooted, or are you going to be doing it haphazardly, right? There's mm-hmm. not a question of whether or not you're going to bring a kind of uh, traditional uh, body of interpretation to the text. It is going to happen. It just may, that may be a bad one, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
2: There's a really good book called The The, the Democratization of American Christianity written by uh, the former president at Wake Forest University, Nathan Hatch. And he highlights this specifically where Americans in the uh, early 1700s, 1800s were basically taking on Americanized and democratic ideals. Like these are the lenses they had and they began reading the Bible without any sense of historic, historic norms. And many of them end up being historically defined as heretics because they aren't reading with the grain of the tradition of the church. They're reading with a very kind of contemporary lens, just me, my Bible, and by myself. So it's a great book if people are interested in thinking about this more. It's called The uh, Democratization of American Christianity.
0: Hmm. It's good. It's a good recommendation. Um, All right. So who are some of the, uh, if we're we're saying this is important, um, that you should engage with the history and the historic witness of the church, who are some of the widely agreed upon significant names and thinkers to be familiar with throughout the history of the church? Like if you were going to say, Hey, these are some of the voices you just got to know. Like, you don't have to have read everything that they've ever written. You don't have to be able to download their, their, their uh, doctrine and communicate it. But these are just people it would be really helpful to know as significant voices. Who, who would you mention? Who would be on that list for you?
2: Maybe, maybe we break this up into like eras. Like, let's do early mm-hmm. church. Uh, And we should also clarify, we're largely talking about the Western church tradition here. Mm -hmm. We're not really hitting on Eastern Orthodoxy as much or African or Eastern traditions. This is largely shaped by our tradition, which is Western Christianity. Uh, But maybe we'll do like early church, kind of Middle Ages, Reformation, and then kind of more contemporary, or maybe that that kind of helps us think about Mm -hmm. who's who's where. So in terms of some early church theologians that you should be aware of, I mean, I think the, the three that I would highlight first would be Irenaeus. Irenaeus served as the Bishop of Lyon, France, and he... Uh, his primary—he so was discipled by people who discipled John, so he's very—John's uh, uh, disciples discipled Irenaeus. He probably mm-hmm. knew John, so like he is very closely connected to the early church tradition. And he's uh, pastoring, and the heresy that I mentioned a moment ago, Gnosticism, is his primary concern. So he writes a book called Against Heresies, and he's helping guide the church Uh, through and around the heresy of Gnosticism. Uh, Another one would be Athanasius for me. He writes the book On the Incarnation, very influential on early formulations around Christology and our formulations of Jesus being one person and two natures. And I'll do like a third and fourth here because this guy's mom had a huge impact on his life, (laughs) Augustine and Monica. Uh, Monica is a Christian before Augustine is. Augustine is going to go work as a Uh, rhetorician in Rome. He's pretty famous, and he's very smart, and he kind of begins dabbling in some weird versions of Platonism and kind of pseudo-Christianities, and he leaves his mom. His mom just prays for him and prays for him and prays for him, and he eventually comes to faith and gets baptized and becomes a bishop in North Africa. He's largely responsible for the church's understanding around total depravity and his writings against Pelagius, who is a Mm -hmm. a fourth-century heretic that didn't understand or didn't believe or confess in total depravity. So Irenaeus, Athanasius, and Augustine for me in that early church segment. What about you guys? Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, I mean, those Bansies. were my, those were the three. <laughs> I, I think, the, I hey, think the,
2: there's other there's other ones, guys. There are. Well, um, you
1: know, I'm not I'm not that well read. I, I admit it. You know, before we started uh, capturing the episode, I, I was like, I'm not sure what my role is here today, guys, because you guys have spent way more time in these um, texts than I have. But even I even, you know, as I say, even a blind pig finds an acorn. I did find my way to Athanasius and to um, Augustine and to some of Irenaeus. And I, um, I just remember thinking, I had a couple of thoughts. One was, oh, this is where it's all coming from. Like, yeah. you know, all of the things that I was reading in contemporary authors, and you're thinking, that guy's a genius because mm-hmm. you don't realize that he's building on this long tradition, yeah. like not a tradition that even started in the Middle Ages, but one that started in the earliest years of the New Testament church. And so that was my, my first thought. My second thought was, you know how you kind of think, people who lived before us must have been dumber than we are. I mean, sometimes you can kind of think that they just didn't know as much as we know. And you're reading what these people wrote and you're thinking, man, maybe I don't think as deeply as people used to because I have so many distractions available to me. So I had that Mm -hmm. thought. But then as a Protestant, you know, I had lacked any natural curiosity around how we got to where we were uh, with all of these different denominations and, you know, what was the nature of the Catholic Church and how did it relate to Protestantism? And then I had also grown up thinking that anything that was Catholic was somehow tainted, like mm-hmm. there had to be something wrong with it. And I really had to face down the fact that at the point that you're reading the words of these people, everyone, everyone is Catholic, right? right. You know, And, and it's going to stay that way up through the Middle Ages, right up into the Reformation. And so I think it forced me to um, acknowledge or to recognize the roots of Protestantism as it grew out of Catholicism, whereas I up to that point would have would have only understood them to be two um, separate things, which I it, yeah. I say it now and it sounds dumb. But um, I was in young adulthood and had never had any exposure to any of this history. So those are just some like uh, cheap seats. um Uh, practical reasons that going back and reading these people were helpful. Yeah.
2: Yeah.
0: That's good. And and the only thing I would add to your list JT is when we think about that period of time, these are not necessarily significant voices. It wasn't one person, but we do get in the history of the church, some significant creeds and confessional documents Mm -hmm. and out of Mm -hmm, that same window in the life of the early church, you wouldn't want to miss out on the apostles' creed and the Nicene Creed. Those two specifically Mm -hmm. are creeds that are contemporary with the voices that JT mentioned Irenaeus, Athanasius, and Augustine. Uh, the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed are both uh, incredibly influential. They ripple for a long period of time. And for most churches, uh, I would say really any true church is going to affirm the essentials, uh, nuts and bolts that you find in the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. So those aren't people, so to speak. They were written by individuals. They are not on the same footing as Scripture, but they are really, really helpful just to have as pens in that period in the life of the Church. And again, we've done a whole uh, season on the Apostles' Creed you can find in the archives. And then this season, we will cover both Athanasius' work on the Incarnation in a full-length episode, and we'll do a full-length episode on Augustine, uh, talking about his confessions and the city of God. So look forward to that. Moving forward into the medieval period, uh, the medieval period probably, uh, in more Protestant circles, does not get as much love and attention uh, as the early church uh, and as what comes after the medieval period in the Reformation. Um, Oftentimes, if... Kind of Christians in our little subculture have read in church history. They've read something that's emerged from the Reformation or beyond. Uh, and we'll, mm-hmm. when we get to those names, you'll be really familiar with. But the three that come to mind for me for the medieval period, we're just right out of the gate, and again, I'm, I'm acknowledging these are not necessarily the greatest hits you're familiar with, but they are significant for that period, would be Gregory the Great, Anselm and Aquinas. Now, Anselm and Aquinas are certainly... They're the superstars of, I think, medieval theology. If anybody's familiar with medieval theologians, they might be familiar with uh, Anselm and Aquinas. Gregory the Great, though, writes a volume called The Pastoral Rule, which is very significant for understanding what pastoral practice is going to look like. In some ways, it feels almost like Augustine's Confessions, um, but it is a great work of practical theology, Early on, just about what the worship, the character of ministry and pastoring is supposed to look like. Uh, It's a really, really great work. Uh, Anselm is most famous for Cur Deus Homo. That's the Latin. um, English translation would be something like Reflections on Human Redemption or Meditations on Human Redemption or Teachings on Human Redemption. But it's a work on atonement and the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. Famous most specifically for helping move the ball forward and understanding the atoning work of Christ on the cross, Um, and then Aquinas is the juggernaut of medieval theology, Uh, and he kind of belongs to Rome. But his uh, in the in the sense that I I think if you ask a Roman Catholic who's the most significant theologian you know, Roman Catholic theologian in history. I think Aquinas is going to be number one with a bullet on that list. Uh, But his influence is not restricted to Roman Catholicism at all. You're actually in some of the contempt. There's a movement in kind of contemporary academic theology in the West to recover what's called like um, uh, kind of classical theism uh, and uh, where there's a real, interest in refocusing on a proper classical doctrine of God uh, or understanding of the doctrine of God. And Aquinas is very significant for that work. He's most famous for his largest work, which is Summa Theologica, which is multi-volume. I think the full edition of that is probably 31 volumes or something like that. You got it down there on your are pointing it to it? We can't see it off camera. Um, no, you can't. I can no. see it on my camera. I bet you can. But I have Bobbing
2: uh, ahead of him, just so you know. Yeah, perfect.
0: The pecking order. Bobbing's right above him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But uh, there is a great addition. If you're ever interested, I mean, really, out of the medieval theologians I just mentioned, if you were going to read one of them, I think your time would be best spent reading Anselm's Cur Deus Homo. It's very accessible. There are great translations for it. You'll find a lot of practical... Ben- That's a great Easter read. It's a great Good Friday read. It's not... Incredibly long. It's not incredibly technical. It is very good. Um, but there's a great translation that Peter Kraft from Boston University did on Aquinas' Summa Theologica. He calls it the Summa of the Summa. He's being a little cute there, a summary of the summary. Um, but it is one volume uh, and it's it's really split up into just the essentials from a, a great mind and scholar. So if you really were interested in engaging with medieval theology, there's a, a wealth of riches. Uh, Aquinas has been incredibly influ- influential on apologetics. So if you're really into apologetics, uh, you've been influenced by Aquinas, whether you know it or not. He had a tremendous influence on classic arguments for the existence of God, like the cosmological argument or the teleological argument or the argument from design. These, he has had a real big influence on apologetics. So if you're interested in that kind of thing, Aquinas would be a great place to go. Is there anybody I'm leaving out of the discussion there? JT, Jen?
2: No, those are the three I was going to say too, ironically. I will say, just because you pointed at some historical moment in early church, something else for people who maybe haven't thought about the turning points of church history is largely up until 1054, the church understands itself as one holy Catholic church. And in 1054, uh, Eastern Orthodoxy breaks from Rome uh, over uh, what they call the Filioque Clause uh, in the creed around what does it mean for the father and the son. That's what Filioque means, to be the senders of the procession of the Holy Spirit. So that's a big, big, big moment in history where the church fractures uh, into two separate traditions.
0: There we go. Do you ever get stuck wondering how to study a Bible passage? The Courage for Life study Bibles for women and the Courage for Life study Bibles for men have over 1,400 Bible studies. That's a Bible study on every page of Bible text. Access to the Filament Bible app lets you dive even deeper. If you download the app and you scan the page number, you can open up a world of resources, including over 25,000 additional study notes, hundreds of videos, and a full audio Bible. Start discovering at courageforlifebible.com. That's courageforlifebible.com for incredible study notes and an incredible study Bible. We live in a possession and money-obsessed culture, but what does the Bible say about generosity? In his new book, A Short Guide to Gospel Generosity, author Nathan Harris shows us that the answer to our obsession with possessions is turning to the gospel, because only in the gospel can we find the type of life transformation that enables us to turn our focus from ourselves and back to others, to give generously, and to follow in the way of Christ. To learn more about the book visit guide to gospel generosity.com. that's guide to gospel generosity.com. now we move forward to the Reformation and this is where i'm imagining our listeners are most familiar here jen who are some of the big names of the reformation just get the names on the table for us what who's some of the big heavyweights
1: so martin luther obviously Bang. would be one of the first mm-hmm. ones uh john calvin and then um okay i'm blanking out who's the guy who uh tore all of the stuff out of the churches Oh, you're talking about Wickley? Zwingli.
2: Zwingli? No, it's not Zwingli. It's not Zwingli. It's uh, he didn't John tear Knox. The stuff
1: out?
0: John Knox. That's right. With the sword. Yeah. John okay.
1: Knox. So you got Luther, Calvin, and Zwingli. And then you those got John Knox. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, John uh,
1: Knox. Sure. Yes. Who else you guys got?
2: I mean, those are the big ones. I know Kyle's a big fan of Johann Tetzel, uh, the Catholic <laughs> theologian. <laughs>
0: Look at you that's guys such, having a little intramural jokey is, joke. I know that's such <laughs> those tensile baseball. jokes they always play. <laughs> I know Which. half the audience, ninety percent <laughs> of the audience, was like, "What?" Uh, yeah, okay. I'm glad funny. that you got it though. Uh, so no, those are the
2: big ones, and 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 it's important even to think about this geographically, is where those theologians are. Let's just take the three that Jen mentioned: uh, Luther, Calvin, and Zwingli is they're participating in the reformation in Europe in different ways and then the the traditions kind of flow from them so that's right luther's participating in the german Refo- like, in some sense it's not even good it's uh, we can say it the reformation but that's not how the lived experience was in the 15th 16th centuries it was the reformations because even these reformers begin disagreeing with each other and having Uh, Conflicts. So you have the German Reformation, which Luther is helping perpetuate. You could say the French Reformation. Uh, This is Calvin primarily, as he's influencing France, despite the fact that he's also spending a lot of time in Switzerland. Uh, And then uh, Zwingli is also spending time in Switzerland, too. And then, of course, you have the English Reformation uh, that John Knox is participating in. And this is what Uh, This is where we get the Church of England when King Henry VIII broke uh, the Church of England off of the Roman Catholic Church in light of his uh, marital situation and a desire for divorce because he hadn't had a a biological son and heir yet. And so you kind of have this English, French, Swiss, German reformations Mm -hmm. that are disagreeing, specifically Luther and Calvin. Have some very strong disagreements with each other around uh, what it, what it means to participate in the Lord's Supper and what the elements actually are, and it's a Christological debate of, of uh, how do we communicate uh, between the two natures of Christ and his presence or lack thereof, spiritual, physical, or non in the, in the elements.
0: That's right. I mean, when we look at these reform guys, it is easy to see them as like, okay, they were kind of this one monolith in their opposition to Roman Catholicism. That's not true at all. They break up into a lot of different streams. That's both some of the beauty of the Reformation and honestly, some of the burden of the Reformation as well is that the schisms do end up creating more schisms and more separations and more separations. And so from, you know, Luther, you're going to get Lutheranism Uh, from Calvin, you're going to get multiple streams of reform thought. You're going to get what's called the Dutch school, Dutch reform theology. This is somebody like Abraham Kuyper and then after him comes somebody like J.T.'s guy, Herman Bavink. This is the Dutch reform school. The, the British school of uh, of Calvin's thought uh, is most kind of clearly expressed in the Westminster Confession of Faith and Shorter and Larger Catechism. These things mutate. Zwingli did not write in the kind of prolific way that Luther and Calvin did. His influence almost becomes more geopolitical and that the the Baptist church really begins to be birthed from the Anabaptist tradition that uh, that mutates out of Zwinglianism, so to speak. So there's all of these different things that just begin to kind of trickle out through the, this, um, these three major figures, Luther, Calvin, and Zwingli. And then they all kind of have students who go on as well mm-hmm. and, and kind of advance their thought. Uh, so it is interesting because after the Reformation, there is a real surge in publication because the printing press is also at the fountainhead of the Reformation. So there's, it's not just coincidental that a lot of us are more familiar with Reformed theology. It's also like providential and historical. There just was a lot more being written by a lot more people because that, the access to that technology increased significantly. Um, and so it's just not a, it shouldn't shock us that, oh, wow, we're are a lot more familiar with Reformed Protestantism. Well, it's kind of our inheritance, and it's also what made it to the market by virtue of access uh, and uh, technology. So those would be—some of the big works there would be, uh, like for Luther, gosh, he wrote so much, but Bondage of the Will and his commentary on mm-hmm. Galatians are probably the two, like, most— Kind of well played uh, tracks for Martin Luther. And then for Calvin, it's Institutes of the Christian Religion is certainly the most well known of what Calvin wrote. It's his big kind of one stop shop for his thought. He wrote a bunch of other stuff, but that's the one that gets the most attention. There isn't a major work for Zwingli that gets that kind of attention. Uh, mm-hmm. But coming out of the Reformation into what we might call modern theology, although we're still talking about a period of 200, 300 years. It gets harder because the globe is expanding. (laughs) It gets harder and harder to narrow it down to be like, these are the three people to know in post-Reformation thought. But I think the three people that we would point out to you, JT, who would you point, if you were only going to name one guy after post-Reformation theology, who would it be? I'm looking at you for your answer.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's got to be Jonathan Edwards for me. Uh, love him or hate him. He is, and he's hes not even American. He's a British theologian. It's still the British colonies when he is uh, preaching and writing, and he is a philosophical and theological force. He's pastoring, and Northampton, Massachusetts, uh, and he's writing a lot of good books, things like Religious Affections and others, uh, the Spirit and Its Fruits, and he experiences uh, unintentionally the the first Great Awakening uh, in the British colonies. I mean, he's known for being kind of a monotone, very academic and intellectual preacher, and the Holy Spirit just falls on his church, and they experience kind of this. Moment, and he actually overstays his welcome. He ends up getting fired by his church uh, a few a few years, a few years later. So, if you're experiencing spiritual revival in your church, it doesn't give you any kind of <laughs> no guarantee, job guarantee. Of, uh, job of having a job five or ten years from now. Uh, he yeah. ends, he then goes to be a missionary uh, to Native American Indians, and he. Uh, is he's, he gets a, a, an immunization, a flu, a flu vaccine? I think it was a flu vaccine, and he ends up dying from it at a relatively young age. And so he uh, has a little bit of a tragic life. Saw some really high highs, low lows. He was a huge fan of uh, George Whitfield. Whitfield's another a prominent preacher uh, in the British colonies, and had George come to his church once and preach during the Great Awakening. So I, I'd say Edwards, with a sub point to Whitfield as a, as a uh, Anglican preacher. Mm-hmm.
0: That's good.
1: Can I throw in the Wesley boys?
2: Absolutely.
0: Mm-hmm. Yep.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Whitfield and the Wesleys and their whole relationship is really interesting to learn about too. You're such an Arminian. I <laughs> do. I have a lot of love for John Wesley and Charles. Yeah. Uh, I just well, do. And you, I, you and, I and I think I do. And I, you know, and you want to talk Bible literacy, those guys had it. And it's I'm always sure interesting not. to me, you know, that you had this deep commitment to Bible literacy uh, on, on both sides of the Arminian Calvinist or, or yeah, Armenian Calvinist debate that, that, continued um for all of Whitfield and the Wesley's um relational history and yet at the end of their lives Whitfield asked John Wesley to preach his funeral so you know I think it's a church history can help us understand charitable disagreement in our day and age
0: That's right. And out of this time period, if you were looking, again, not for a figure or for a work specifically, but for some documents that were significant, you'd be looking at things like um, the three forms of unity, which include the Heidelberg Catechism, the Belgic Confession of Faith. You'd be looking for things like the Westminster Confession of Faith, Mm -hmm. the Mm -hmm. Westminster Shorter and Larger Catechism, and Baptist World. You'd be looking at the First and Second London Baptist Confession. These would all be major documents, significant documents in this time period that would be helpful to just know about and maybe to even read through. These uh, confessional documents do represent distillations and summaries of the collective thought of the Christian community in a place at a time. And for that reason, I've always found them to be a really helpful compass at navigating different periods for kind of the, the life and of witness of, of the church. Um, I think for me... Moving beyond those names, there, moving further down or kind of closer to our own time in history, you know, the names uh, that you you start to kind of have to pay attention to are names like Abraham Kuyper, a Dutch Reformed theologian, but also philosopher and politician who had an enormous influence over the Dutch Reformed school, which comes over to the states in a, for, a variety of ways, uh, not limited to the thought of Bavinck, but what they call old, and then New Princeton and Westminster seminary like contemporary reform thought is highly indebted to kuiper um at every level theologically philosophically politically culturally ecclesiologically it's a huge he's a huge player
1: let's not forget to mention some of our favorite puritans while we're talking about this yeah. particular. We mentioned Jonathan Edwards, but I mean, you know, I think they weren't necessarily writing um, like formational documents, mm-hmm. uh, although the Westminster Confession. But, sure. you know, you think about John Bunyan, who writes Pilgrim's Progress, That's which right. I think is the, the second most printed uh, book uh, or read book uh, next to the Bible. And then like guys like Stephen Charnock, like some of the people who have really formed my thinking the most came out of this era. That's um, right. Of writing, As you mentioned, Kyle, because with the help of the printing press, we all know their names in a way that we might not have known the names of those who were earlier. Anybody else got a
2: favorite Puritan? He's technically not Puritan in the sense that you're talking about it, but one theologian we haven't mentioned yet uh, is John Owen. Uh, oh, yeah, uh, yeah. The- He's a very important theologian, kind of on the post-post Reformation mm-hmm. uh, British island, and he he writes lots and lots and lots of stuff. Uh, probably the highest one is c- uh, communion with God,
0: mm-hmm. an understanding
2: of how God's triune nature helps us understand how we have fellowship not just with the one God, but with each person of the Godhead was highly formational for me uh, when I was in seminary. So, but he's he's kind of in that puritanical tradition, uh, kind of uh, <clears throat> wanting to expand religious liberty and a lot of his followers end up being people who uh, move to the British colonies.
0: That's right. Mm-hmm.
1: I think most of us only know the Puritans as the people who came over on the Mayflower, but we don't know <laughs> right. a lot about their their That's theological right. space that they lived in That's right. It was another uh, aha moment for me as someone who had not, never studied church history
2: yeah I mean they were religious pilgrims, i mean they were yeah uh, refugees escaping yeah. what they consider to be religious persecution,
1: yeah,
0: moving into the nineteenth and twentieth century um Jen, I know that a w Pink has been somebody that you 've profited from a lot. Um, and then I think of, oh my goodness. I mean, certainly in these time periods, again, there are so many figures that are now at play as theology becomes an academic discipline and the university system begins to create really, uh, formal spaces for theology to be done at an academic level. So in the 19th to 20th century, um, you have some popular level people, but I think the juggernaut of this time period is Karl Barth. Uh, nobody has more of an influence probably in 20th century theological work than Karl Barth. Uh, it was huge. It was seismic. Um, and, uh, it still ripples today. So Carl Bart's church dogmatics was his magnum opus mega work. Uh, and, uh, Bart is somebody that we probably, Bart is in a different lane from us. Um, uh, that kind of the way that we would express much concrete theological conclusions, but there's no doubt his influence is ginormous. Uh, in 20th century theological reflection.
1: You said juggernaut and ginormous. Are we talking about a ginormous juggernaut
0: here? Is that what's happening? I, I can't. We can't. Like I think Karl Barth is one of those people because he's so recent. <laughs> like a lot of people, I, I'm always surprised. I, I don't want people necessarily to just spend a lot of time reading Karl Barth, but All contemporary theological reflection is being done with reference to Karl Barth in ways that are similar to Calvin and Luther and Augustine. But his newness, Mm -hmm. his contemporariness, Mm -hmm. so to speak, even though he died almost, well, we're getting close to, you know, 50, 70, I don't remember, 1965, Mm -hmm. whenever Karl Barth died, it was recent. But that uh, I think that newness definitely mitigates what people's consideration of him is.
1: I got a couple of big names for this era two that just really uh were eye-opening to me when i started to learn about the the nature of their work and the first is charles grandison finney who um was responsible for a lot of the ways that um at least in the west we think about what a revival is um and he was fascinated with the great awakening and um began to seek ways to replicate it more or less. Um, and mm-hmm. so he's the father of revivalism, And so that's really an important thing for you to understand. If you, um, are in a church that likes to talk about revival, I think it's good to recognize what it is and what it isn't. And he's a, he's a helpful counterpoint to people like, uh, Jonathan Edwards. And I'm by helpful. I mean, he can show us what not to do. And then it's the other one would be, um, Schofield Schofield had a huge impact on uh, on the way people thought about, in particular, eschatology, um, but covenants. And so some of the conversations that had developed among the Puritans about covenant theology um, come to be essentially challenged by Schofield's um, reading of the Bible, and we get the rise of modern dispensationalism.
0: That's right. JT, anybody we're leaving off here, 19th, 20th century?
2: I mean, I think I'd add J.I. Packer. Yeah.
1: Oh, yeah.
2: Yeah, but I think that's a great list. I agree. I'm really glad um, you said you don't like Finney Jen. I was like, uh-oh.
1: Were you a little worried I was into it?
2: I was a little worried. I was like, wow, the anxious Jen's, bench. Jen's getting into revivalism <laughs> over there.
0: Jen's any to the Finney?
1: It was uh, one of those things. That, no, reading about him was one of those things that really explained. This is why I think church history matters. It, it explained so much of mm-hmm. what I grew up with. Um, just so much it, and, um, and I realized, oh, these aren't, again, this isn't new, these, these ideas or the, or these practices, they actually had an origin and, and there mm-hmm. were forces that brought them about to, to make them be popularized.
0: So when you think about, oh gosh, we, we, we just gave you, you know, 20, 25 names, some major works across the history of the church, and, and listen, you you might be thinking, okay, well, like, where do I even begin on something like this? And I, we're going to give you some full-length episodes this season on some of these major works, and, and, and they could be good kind of almost listening guides or accompaniments to working through one of these works. We've picked out works that we think are accessible, that we think that you could read with others and, and talk about and discuss, and that you'd find It would be really profitable to do so. Um, I think uh, what I want to encourage you to consider is that the history of the church is shaping and influencing your participation in Christian discipleship, whether you know it or not. Like if you're a part of a church, if you're involved in Christian discipleship in any way, in any kind, to any degree, if you've been influenced by Christian witness. Even if you're somebody who's like not religious and a friend sent this to you, like you have been influenced by these figures and the world around you has been shaped by these figures. And so it might be a really... I don't know, uniquely beneficial to consider one of these major influences and figures and explore not only how they have impacted historic Christian practice and thought but how they're uh, impacting contemporary Christian practice and thought and contemporary societies where there has been a huge influence of Christian witness. Like you may not know Charles Finney and Charles Finney might have had a low impact on the life of your present church. That would actually be a positive thing, but he had a significant impact on American culture and uh, Mm-hmm. It, it might surprise you to learn the kind of impact that he had and the way that it's rippled in other domains that are, don't feel explicitly religious. And this is true, not just of Finney, but it's true of Calvin and Luther, and it's true of Augustine. It's true of much of what you'll find in Western society. And so this season, we're going to dive into some of the works that we mentioned and other works that we didn't talk about specifically. Like we're going to do a full-length episode on Athanasius' on, on the Incarnation. We're going to do a full-length episode on Augustine, his confessions in the city of God. We're going to talk about G.K. Chesterton's work, Orthodoxy. We're going to talk about Luther's Galatians commentary. We're going to talk about Calvin and the Institutes of the Christian Religion. We're going to talk about A.W. Pink and the attributes of God. This is going to be fun for us. And each one of us has been more or less influenced by some of these works. Pink's work has not had a massive influence on me, but it did have a very large influence mm-hmm. on Jen. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Confessions and City of God, uh, it clicked with me, but not in the same way that it did with J.T., whereas Chesterton, students orthodoxy was incredibly significant for me and i recommend mm-hmm. it to everybody so hopefully and even as we talk through these you're going to find you don't have to become a compendium of all knowledge throughout the history of the church but you might find kind of a subset of voices that are really uniquely beneficial to your life with jesus and in the company of the church over the history uh, of what god has done so i
1: i don't have to become a compendium but can i become a Juggernaut.
0: You could become a juggernaut. We will allow you to become a juggernaut for, you know, who do you Only want to if become? You're a, ju- a ginormous one. A ginormous a ginormous juggerna- juggernautical compendium. Listen, you can fault me for a lot of things, but not being hyperbolic will not be one of those things. Uh, or multisyllabic. And- uh, yep, that's right. Uh, you can find Knowing Faith on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We can, you can find us out there. If you want to find some behind-the-scenes stuff, you can go to church.com slash support. We have a newsletter, the three of us do, uh, that will tell you things that are coming up. They'll let you know about stuff that's going to be released before it gets released. There's cool stuff there. Go check it out over at church.com. Uh, Thank you for listening to our podcast today. If you heard anything on the show that you want to find out more about, you can check the show notes. You can find links to our sponsors. You can find links to any books we recommended. You can find all the links to what you'll need on the Train the Church website listen, this season, um, I got a lot of messages on uh, Instagram last season with people asking, hey, I want to help other people find the show. I want to help support the show. You can go to com slash support and there's some ways you can do that there. But if you want to do like a free and easy way to help other people find the show, two things. One, you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. I've said it before. Don't ask me how it works. Somehow it just works. When you review the show on Apple Podcasts, it helps other people find it. The other way that you can do it is share it on social media word of mouth is the best way to get other people to jump in so if you want other people to dive into exploring exodus alongside you or with you share it on social media when our episodes release and that will help other people find the show we hope you enjoyed the discussion today grace and peace Did this episode spark an interest to learn more about Jesus, the Bible, or theology? You can receive free theological training through Midwestern Seminaries for the Church Institute, which offers courses in Old and New Testament, Christian theology, and more, including the newly released course on missional leadership. Again, this is free theological training that you can use for your own equipping, the equipping of those in your church, and it is available for groups or on your own. You can learn more and get started today at ftcinstitute.com. Again, that's ftcinstitute.com for theological training courses, free theological training courses today. Go check it out.